Thank you, Kelly, for that. Thank you for wearing orange for me today. I really appreciate that. You know, I don't own an orange shirt, so like an orange dress shirt. So uh, if anybody just is, is compelled during Pastor Appreciation Month to get a shirt for their pastor, I, I'd appreciate that. Not a red one. I don't own a red shirt either, but uh, now I know which one's... Probably what I'm going to get is a red one now, right? That's right. Well, I appreciate Ben preaching for me last week, and we were able to be out of town for that weekend, and he looked at the first five verses of James chapter 4. We're in the book of James talking about how to have a faith that works, a faith that makes a difference in our lives and the lives of others. And as he looked at these first five verses of James 4, he focused on this inner war that we often find ourselves in, this inner struggle with the, the fleshly desires that we often long for. We long for the things of this world and we know that we shouldn't. And uh, one of the results of that inner struggle is that we find ourselves in the worst kind of friendship. Friendship with the world, friendship with the world's wisdom and ways is the worst kind of friendship. And James describes that friendship in some pretty harsh terms. He calls it committing spiritual adultery. He says it makes us enemies of God. So I want to just quickly review those first five verses to lead into today's message about the best kind of friendship. And that's because he kind of introduced that for us. Friendship with God truly is the best kind of friendship. But first let's look briefly at three reasons that friendship with the world is the worst. Uh, let's look at James chapter 4, beginning with verses 1 through 5. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the Scripture says the Spirit He made to dwell in us envies intensely? So James is telling us that when we as Christians become friendly with the world and the world's ways, it leads to three things. Very briefly, these are the first three blanks in your notes there. It leads to division in the church. Churches divide. Churches experience uh, just division and chaos and disorder when we allow the world and the world's ways to get into our lives. He talks about that in verses 1 and 2. In verse 3, he tells us it's prayerlessness in the church is the result. The more worldly we become, the less we pray. And when we do pray, we pray the wrong things for the wrong reasons. So it's either prayerlessness or powerlessness in our prayers. And then in verses 4 and 5, he says that being friend with the world leads to worldliness in the church. That kind of goes without saying that the more we align with the world in its ways, the more worldly we become in our thinking and our acting and the things that we do. Now listen, we all struggle with this. We've all been guilty at some point of flirting with sin, of cozying up to the world and its ways and to those that we think can give us influence or can give us pleasure or can give us power. When we mistreat someone because we want to fit in with a certain crowd. When we say we believe one thing privately but we talk and act differently publicly when we try to run God's church using the world's priorities and ways, when we hold ourselves to the world's standards of beauty and success and worth, when we talk about people rather than to them, 
when we are quick to sideline the things of God out of convenience or to avoid ridicule or so that we can spend our time and our money for our pleasure alone, we are befriending the world and we're becoming worldly. So what's the cure? How do we resist these fleshly impulses? How can we break up with the world so that we can draw closer in a relationship with God? Listen, a deep, intimate walk with our Creator, it's not something that we can drum up on our own. It's not something that I can generate. It's not something that I can create. It's something that has to be received because it is a gift of grace. Relationship with God, you can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's something that God freely gives that we enter into. And so James outlines four things that must happen if we want to experience a deepening relationship with God. If we want God to be our best friend and we want to be a good friend to God, James gives us four things that we must do. Let's look verses 6 through 10. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The first thing we must do to have a friendship with God is humbly receive God's grace. That's what he says in verse 6. We must humbly receive God's grace. I love this. He, in verses 1 through 5, he talks about all the ways in which the world ruins us. He talks about all the, the, the bad things that happen as we befriend the world and become more like the world. But I love that the next words he says in verse 6 are, but he gives greater grace. He gives greater grace. Friendship with God is a grace gift. It's something that He gives us. It's far greater than anything the world could ever give us. And because it's a grace gift that we can neither earn nor deserve, all we can do is receive it humbly, with humility. Now, humility is the ability to admit when we're wrong, isn't it? It's the ability to admit that we need something that we don't have. It's the ability to make our hearts vulnerable to God's Word so that His Word can pierce our hearts like a sword, so that His Word can be like a spotlight to expose the darkness that creeps into our lives. Listen, friendship with the world happens subtly. It happens slowly. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not sudden and dramatic most of the time. It kind of creeps into our lives, and, and it often lies under the surface quietly, like a cancer. You don't even know is there. And we need God, we need His Word to be like a, a scan that reveals to us the sin that's hidden in our hearts. And then we bring our hearts to God and we let Him do His work to remove the cancer of sin. Now here in verse uh, 6, James is quoting from Proverbs 3.34. And that chapter of Proverbs lays out the difference between friendship with God and friendship with the world. And it describes the friends of the world as people who withhold good from those who need it, who mistreat their neighbors and take advantage of them, who falsely accuse others. They're, they're violent, they're devious, they're mocking and Proverbs 3 says that God detests such people. He, he mocks and humiliates them for the fools that they are. But then it explains how God honors, blesses, and befriends those who are upright, those who give to those in need, 
those whose neighbors trust them and are glad to live beside them, those who are righteous and humble. See, that's the difference between those who hang out with the world and those who draw close to God. Now, the good news and the comfort that we can draw from James 4, 6 is that when we do slip into the world's ways, when we do find ourselves kind of lured into the world's camp by all their shiny toys and all the cool kids, God gives more grace. When we deceive others and dishonor them, God gives more grace. When we withhold good from others to spend it for our own selfish pleasures, God gives more grace. When we're prodigal sons and daughters who leave the Father's house to go and live it up with our friends and party till we drop and we find ourselves alone and abandoned in a pig pen and we come to our senses, God gives more grace. Listen, the Father is always ready and waiting for you to come back home. He's longing for us to return to our senses. His offer of friendship still and always stands. He gives greater grace. But we have to be humble enough, like that prodigal son, to realize the mess we've landed ourselves in, to come to our senses, to turn our backs on that, and to go home and confess and repent and come to God, admit the mistakes that we've made and discover that He gives greater grace. His mercy is more. Though our sins are many, as we sang earlier, God's mercy is more. But when we do that, when we turn from that life, when we humbly come to God to receive His gift of grace, second thing we're doing is we're drawing nearer to God in submission. We're drawing nearer to God in submission. Look at verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Now, that is a word we don't like very much, that word submit. Submission, right? I mean, we like to call our own shots. We like to be our own person. We want to be independent. But the truth is, we say all those kinds of words, but really what it is, is we kind of like to be like those willful, rebellious children that don't do what they're told, right? I mean, we got, we got our preschool parents here today. Uh, do your preschoolers ever become obstinate and just refuse to do what you tell them to do? Right? I mean, you're trying to feed them. And listen, it's not always just like you're feeding them, you know, peas or something like that. It can be like their favorite food yesterday. And for whatever reason today, they're just like, mm, 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 you know, and they, they won't take it. They won't eat. They won't take their medicine. They won't go to bed. They won't take a bath. They won't get dressed. They won't go to school. Right? Is is that true? Is that that an apt description? Listen, aren't we the same way? Let's be honest here. We're the same way. We can be willful. We can be obstinate and stubborn. But here's the thing. We're all in submission to someone. We're all living for something. Every one of us are under something or someone else's authority. The question is, are we under the authority of Christ, our Creator and Redeemer? Or are we under the authority of our own selfish desires and fleshly appetites? Are we following self, Satan, or the Savior? We're following someone. Rebellion against God is a serious 
matter. Satan is the greatest rebel of all time, and he's in the business of trying to get as many people to join him in his rebellion, even the people of God. In John 8, 44, Jesus describes Satan as a murderer, a liar, and the father of all lies. In Revelation 12, 9, it describes Satan as the one who deceives the whole world. So is it any wonder that in 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter warns us to be sober-minded and alert because our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone that he can devour. So how do we keep ourselves from being deceived and devoured by our enemy? How do, we, how do we keep that from happening? How do we keep ourselves from befriending the world? Well, the answer is stunningly simple, and James gives it to us. Stop submitting to the devil and submit to God. It's brilliant. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Can it really be that simple? You know, I love that verse. I think about that verse, I think about what a coward Satan really is. Right? I mean, the closer God's people draw to Him, the more we're on our knees in prayer, the more we're in the Word of God, the more we're gathered together as the people of God, Satan jumps out and he runs away faster than those Bama fans ran out of the stadium last night. He's gone. He can't stand it when the people of God draw near to Him. And doesn't that tell us that there's nothing more urgent and more important than for us to draw near to God? Now listen, if we're brutally honest with ourselves today, we have to acknowledge that sometimes we have our faces turned a little bit more towards the world and our backs a little bit more towards God, don't we? Let's, 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 let's be honest with ourselves. And, and I, you know, I look at the world today and I think, you know, where, where's the revival in our churches? Well, revival comes when we realize that we've got our posture wrong. Revival comes when we realize we've got our back to God and our face to the world and we make an about face. That's revival. It's not a series of meetings. It's not an emotional high. It's, there's nothing magical and mystical about this. It's when the people of God say, I've got my priorities in the wrong place. I need to focus on my friendship with God. And we do that as we draw near to God in submission. Now, this is easy to say amen to and to nod your head to. And yeah, David, that's right. But are we doing it? Our tendency is to draw near with our lips while our hearts stay far away from God. Drawing near to God is more than merely mouthing a few words. It's more than nodding our heads in agreement to reject friendship with the world, to escape from being deceived and devoured by our enemy means that we've got to do this third thing. We've got to cleanse our hands and our hearts. James goes on in verse 8 to say, Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Dirty hands and defiled hearts, that's the condition, sadly, of so many Christians today. What about us? Are our hands dirty? Are they involved in worldly activities? Are, are they engaged in doing things contrary to the way that God would have us to live? Maybe your feet are taking you to places you don't need to go. Maybe your mouth is saying things that you ought not to say. 
When we talk about dirty hands, we don't just mean our hands. We mean our speech, our actions, any outward behavior that is sinful and selfish. But here's the thing about the hands. The hands only reflect what's in the heart. One preacher said that the mouth and the hands are the storefront, but the heart is the warehouse. It's where the supply chain starts. And so it makes no sense to to call us to cleanse our hands unless we're also being called to purify our hearts, which is what James says. And he says that we need to purify our hearts because we're double-minded. Now, earlier in chapter 1, he talks about the person who doubts as being double-minded and unstable in all their ways. The question is, do we love God with our whole heart or are we double-minded? Are we divided in our allegiance? Are we torn in our affections? Are we trying to be friends with God and friends with the world, riding that fence? Now listen, whenever the Bible talks about the heart, the hands, you think about actions, the things you do. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the totality of your being, the core of who you are. And we can think about the heart as encompassing our mind, our will, and our affections. So as we cleanse our hands and purify our hearts, we can do three things to help with that. First, we renew our mind. We renew our mind. That means we get rid of unbiblical and unspiritual thinking. Paul talks about this in Romans 12 too. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't behave like the world. Don't think like the world. Don't live like the world but be transformed, be changed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. I want us to think for just a minute at how much influence we allow the world to have on our minds. Maybe more than any generation in history, we give so much influence over our minds to Hollywood, to the news media, to social media. We're constantly looking at some kind of screen or listening to some kind of radio or music or talk show or something. We see billboards everywhere we go. We're constantly bombarded with these messages from the world. And we are influenced by them in ways we don't even notice, in ways we don't even think about. They're shaping our mind. And listen, they're not shaping our mind to think like the mind of Christ. They're not leading us by the Spirit of God. Their authority and source of truth is not the Word of God. And so they influence our ideas, our emotions, our desires. You know, and it's sort of, I think about COVID and, you know, how over the past few years we've heard the word asymptomatic, right? I don't think I'd ever heard that word before, you know, 2020. Asymptomatic. And how the idea was you've got these people walking around out there, they've got COVID, they don't even know it, you don't even know it, it's asymptomatic, but you can catch COVID from them. That was the idea. Listen, there are people all around us that are infected with the ideas of the world. And they may be people that we like. They may be people we respect and even look up to. They may be people in authority over us. And we might think, well, they're smart. They're kind. They're funny. I like being around them. Certainly they wouldn't be infected with the world's way of thinking. But it always comes out. It always becomes known in the way they act, in the way they talk, in the decisions they make, in the things that they talk to us about. And if we're not careful, we begin to find ourselves infected with that same way of thinking. Worldliness. 
that rejects the authority of God's Word. It's not a biblical worldview. It's, it's the skewed worldview. We must be aware of that. We need God's Spirit and God's Word to renew our minds, to cleanse us of the vile, abhorrent ways of the world around us that, that listen, that disguise themselves in the sheep's clothing of words like love and tolerance and, and, and acceptance and all those kinds of things. But listen, when you pull the curtain back on those words, you see they don't mean the same thing that we think they mean. The world loves to take God's Word and twist it and misquoted out of context. The world loves to take good things, words that we would say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for that, and they redefine it. And that's how we get ourselves sucked in to thinking like the world. But when we allow the Word and Spirit of God to renew our mind, we can instead think as Paul says in Philippians 4.8, when he says whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, think about these things. God renews our mind. But secondly, we need to submit our will. We need to submit our will. Part of our heart is our will, our capacity for choice and action, either to participate with God in His work in the world or to resist it, either to respond to God's commands in obedience or in disobedience. That is our will. It was the will of Adam and Eve that the serpent attacked in the Garden of Eden, and from that moment on, the human will has been fully corrupted. Theologian A.W. Tozer said, the root of all evil in human nature is the corruption of of the will are choosing whether we follow and obey God or not. And there's only one solution to the corruption of our will, to our ability to choose and to act. And John Calvin explains it. He says, to will is human. That's part of what it means to be human. God gave us the ability to will, to choose, to act, to will. The bad is of fallen nature because we're sinners. To will the good is of grace. Listen, apart from God's grace, we can't help but choose from our fallen nature. We need the transforming work of God in our lives to be able to will the good. Paul talks about this in Philippians 2.13. He said, It is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. That's part of the sanctifying work of the Word and Spirit of God in our hearts as believers is to help us to want to do and be able to do what God commands and demands of us. The Spirit of God helps us to want to live by His ways and to work for His purposes. And listen, it's a lifelong process. It's something that we as believers, we get better at. God is working in us throughout our lives. It doesn't happen overnight. It's something that takes time. As long as we live in this body of flesh, we're going to always wrestle with temptation. But the more we draw near to God... In humble submission, the more we present to Him our heart and our hands for Him to cleanse and purify, the more we'll want to do the things of God. But the third part about cleansing our hands and our heart is it redirects our affections. Now, when I say the word affections, I'm talking about the appetite of our hearts, the things that we love and long for the most. One philosopher, Blaise Pascal, wrote, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. 
God created us with this need to want, to be wanted, this need to love and be loved, to be cared for, to be seen, to be known. That's part of how God made us. But sin disorders these very good desires and affections such that we do what one other philosopher once said, we look for love in all the wrong places. So we need to take a page out of James as John does in 1 John chapter 2 when he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. The tragedy of loving the world and having an affection for the things of the world is they always lead us in the opposite direction from God who is the only one who really can satisfy the longings of our heart. So as we receive with humility the grace of, of a relationship with God, as we, as we submit to God in drawing near to Him and we allow Him to cleanse our hands and our hearts, we have the opportunity to choose to love the right things. Sort of like the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you remember that, you know, Indy goes into this room and there's all these grails, right? All these beautiful cups. And, and there's this knight there that's guarding the Holy Grail. And he says that you've got to choose, but choose what? Anybody know? Wisely, yeah. For while the true grail will bring you life, the false grail will take it from you. And of course, the bad guy goes for the prettiest looking grail and he drinks from it and he just withers away and dies. And thankfully, Indiana Jones, of course, he chooses the right one. This little rustic old cup. You know, he's like, that's the cup of a carpenter. Listen, James and John are both telling us that when it comes to what we love, we must choose, but choose wisely. For if we choose friendship with God, it will give us life. But if we choose friendship with the world, it will take life from us. Make no mistake. This is why Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, that we're to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Minds that are transformed by the truth of God, choices that are made according to the will of God, affections that are set on the things of God, these will enable us to live for God, to follow His commands and experience His blessings. And the final thing that James tells us is we must be broken over our sin. We must be broken over our sin. He says in verses 9 and 10, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Now these are kind of some strange verses that feel a little out of place in our culture, right? Because our culture loves to laugh, don't we? I mean, our culture is one that's built on frivolity and humor and lightheartedness and comedy. I mean, we, we just love it so much. And I love to laugh. I love to crack jokes and cut up. But, but our culture has almost got to the point, we've idolized this to the point, that anything that makes us laugh, we think it must be good. We confer virtue on anything that makes a chuckle come or, or a smile to our lips. People are more likely to judge a preacher on how well he can tell a joke than how well he can exegete a passage of Scripture. Because we love humor. Listen, James is not calling us to be joyless. He's not calling us to be humorless and miserable, but he is clearly telling us that our sins are no laughing matter. 
We should be broken over our sin. We should mourn over our sin. One author explained it this way, when James appeals to world-infected Christians to change their laughter to mourning, their joy to gloom, he's not rejecting Christian joy, but showing them the way to its true enjoyment. James wants us to be happy Christians, but he also wants us to understand that any joy which coexists with a worldly spirit and practice is a dangerous mirage. Pastor Kent Hughes offers this observation, while gloom is not a Christian characteristic, mourning over our sin is. So in closing, very quickly, three reasons why we should mourn over our sin. One, sin defies God's authority. Remember I said we're all living under someone's authority? Right? And if we're going to be friends with the world, we're committing adultery against God. If we're friends with the world, we're enemies of God. Worldliness sets itself up. It contends with us, with God, for us. It is our enemy. It is God's enemy. So sin defies the authority of God, and for that reason we should mourn it. Secondly, sin delays God's work. When we allow sin in our lives, it keeps us from really growing and experiencing what God would have us to do. When churches are behaving and acting in sinful ways, they're not going to experience the revival that they long for. They're not going to see the power of God working in them to save the lost and disciple the saved. When we allow sin in our lives, it damages our testimony and keeps us from being able to lead others to Christ. It delays God's work. And third, sin deprives us of God's joy. We should mourn over our sins because sin robs us of true joy. Listen, the devil, the father of lies, one of his favorite lies is to try to convince us that living according to God's Word is a life of misery. That God is just a killjoy. That true freedom is to reject any kind of standard over ourselves. The true freedom is to reject the roles and responsibilities that God lays out for us and just to, to be free to do whatever we want to do. But that's the exact opposite. Listen, the long, savage, bloody story of human history shows us this, that when we cast off restraint, people perish. And where is the joy in that? Where is the joy in allowing sin to destroy our homes, our families, our churches, our reputations? Sin may bring pleasure for a season, but it's a short season. And the consequences are long-lasting. We wonder why we don't see revival and true spiritual awakening. I believe it's waiting at the door. I believe it's waiting for us to do what James has told us to do. To humbly draw near to God in submission and receive His grace. To let Him renew our mind. To bring in submission to Him our will. Let Him redirect our heart's affections and for us to be broken and mourn over the sin in our lives. Listen, this morning maybe you feel the convicting work of God's Spirit in your heart and mind. Maybe you're sitting here today and you know that your friendship with God is not what it should be. Maybe it's not what it used to be. Maybe you can look back at a time and, and remember when you were closer to God than you are now, when you felt His presence more, when He was more of a priority in your life that you've allowed yourself to grow cold in your affection for God and for the things of God. You've allowed that worldly thinking to infect your mind. Your priorities have been put out of place and you don't make the choices that you know God would have you to make. God gives greater grace. I want you to hear me. God gives greater grace. His mercy is more than all your sins. 
and all your mistakes. God is waiting for you today to come back to Him. And I promise you, God will never ghost you when you come calling. He will never pretend like He's not home when you come knocking on that door. He is standing there longing and waiting for you to return to Him. He is ready to embrace you right now, this morning, if you'll come home. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you've never received the gift of God's grace. You don't know what it's like to have a relationship with God. Jesus Christ did everything upon the cross that we need for our sins to be forgiven and for us to be given a fresh start, a clean slate, a relationship with God. Maybe you need to come this morning and receive that gift of grace for the first time and begin a relationship with God. Whatever God has laid on your heart, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've come from. I want you to remember, if you don't remember anything else today, God gives greater grace. Whatever your excuse, whatever your fear, God gives greater grace. Let's stand together and let's pray. Let's come and respond as His Spirit leads us. Father, we are thankful that You are a God of greater grace greater than our fears and worries, greater than our shame and regret, greater than our sins and mistakes. Your grace is greater. And that's why your friendship is the better friendship. We we don't have to try to earn it. We can just receive it. And it's a friendship that changes us. It transforms us from the inside out. And it promises us and it guarantees us a better tomorrow, a true joy, truly becoming who you created us to be as You renew us and You change us from the inside out. And Father, if there's anyone here today that needs to experience that, I pray You'd give them the grace to step forward and to make that commitment. That grace to come forward and to kneel at this altar and pray. And most importantly, God, give us the grace to go out these doors, different people, daily pursuing a closer walk with You. In Jesus' name we pray.